open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. Are you all right there? Are you cold? It's chilly. All right. Uh, or you can, you can open your Bible or you can uh, tap on your Bible device, whichever way you're going to go. What, let's remember as we lean into Revelation again this morning, uh, this is going to be, we're, we'll, we'll, we won't do Revelation, we won't uh, be in Revelation next week because of the fish fry. We talk about uh, the, the, the work of God and the plan and the mission of God here at Heritage. We're going to talk about our, our, the, our race, the race that we are in as believers next week because it's our anniversary celebration. Today, let, let's remember why we are studying Revelation. Because Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 says this, and this is so important because it, it really helps us focus, even as we read obscure or different-sounding texts, this passage helps us keep in mind what we're doing and how to respond. Blessed is he who reads, I'm going to read it and you're going to read along, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in it. Read, hear, and heed. We need to hear it and then respond to it. If we read it in such a way, everybody get your big, biggest grin out, okay? If we read or hear Revelation in such a way that precludes us from responding to it, we are reading it wrong. So we need to go, okay, this is something I'm supposed to respond to. This is an, this, there's an, always an invitation to the audience to respond to something. And we're trying to use the same frame of reference that John John did. We're, we're trying to interpret Revelation using Old Testament manuscripts to, to understand the, the symbols and the pictures and the words that he is using. At, you may have noticed, and there are some folks that have noticed, I'm sure, and you'll notice even more particularly today in the weeks ahead, that as we explore some passages, for some of you, I may say something that you didn't quite expect, or maybe you weren't taught before. Or maybe you have actually taught something else uh, as you have taught this text. Can I say this clearly? Please don't panic. Don't panic. Because I promise that no matter how, what our, what the, how we approach in Revelation in, interpretively, here's the things that will not change and will never change from this pulpit. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is coming you like the first part more, okay? Jesus is Lord. Amen. Jesus is coming. Amen. See, the point of Revelation is really to get you to get that shadow meter higher on that second one, okay? Jesus is coming, and thirdly, we should live like it, like he is Lord and he is coming, okay? And so if... It, so you think, well, no matter what, even if, even, so even if something is said that is outside of your frame of reference or your school of thought or what did the Sunday school quarterly, don't panic. It's okay because Jesus is Lord, Jesus is coming, and we should live like it. Amen. All right. So that being said, uh, it, it, so far as we have looked through our study in the book of Revelation, we've seen several things. We've seen worship in heaven. We've heard about warning on earth. And we have been reminded that eternity is real and it is trying to get our attention. But what is the church's role? What is our responsibility and calling during all of this? What should we hear and heed, if you will, during tribulation. Well, we have a mandate. We have a commission to declare truth as messengers of God's word. And we are protected. We are sealed. We are actually measured and marked not only as his people, but as his temple. And we are right now his spirit empowered witnesses. This is so well, while we read about all the things that are going on, if you will, in a sense, almost cosmically, 
we remember at least these things that are true about us right now. We'll talk about that today, and, and when we come back, next time we'll see that not only are those things true, we will also be reminded that we will face opposition, but we will overcome. But today, the short summary for this morning is this. Until Jesus comes, we have work to do. Would you just say we have work to do? All right, let's begin in chapter 10 then. The, 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 the subtitle as we begin chapter 10 is the church, we are messengers of God's word. All right, here's chapter 10 and verse 1. If you are given to reading various commentaries uh, with, this, uh, with this book, uh, you should read at least, if you're going to read any, you should read four because what I have discovered is that, well, uh, interpretive opinions about this text are a lot like armpits. Everybody has a couple of them. And one of them may not smell great. Um, but you, there, there are, there's, a, there's a lot of different approaches. But almost universally, here's what, I, what people keep saying as you, as you begin chapters 10 and 11. They'll say something to this effect. Well, we're about to embark on one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. Uh, and then they just, so that kind of gives them license to just say, let's just freewheel it. Um, uh, so it is. There, in other words, there's, it's not as clear, and there's a reason for that, and I hope that I'll land on that. I hope that I can help us make us comfortable with the fact that it's, it's not a, uh, just a, a A plus B equals C type of thing, but it is, I believe, far more simple than it has been made to be because, remember, our goal is to hear and heed. All right. So verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, uh, John, the revelator, says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was on his head. You see what I did there? Yeah, yeah. And a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Time out. This is some angel. Am I right? This angel, as we read it, and I and I don't really, I don't, I don't want to take up too much time to explain how I come at these passages. If you're ever wondering, like, hey, Dav, what's your agenda when you come to Revelation? I'm going to be totally honest with you. I am absolutely confused the moment I start. I start reading on Sunday afternoon, and I did it on Father's Day. I was reading chapter 10, and I was reading through this, and I kept looking up at my dad saying, I don't know what's going on here. And it takes me a while until I land to where I have relative confidence on Sunday morning. What I mean is I don't come with an agenda. I really come with an altruistic intention to try to hear and heed. So I'm reading this, and I'm reading this to my dad, and I, don't, and I haven't even started trying to interpret. I'm just reading, and I, think, and I said, wait a minute, angel clothed with a cloud? Wait a minute, I said, you know, the sun, he's coming on the cloud. <laughs> that sounds like a guy I know. And then a rainbow is on his head. That's an Old Testament uh, reference to, to Yahweh, and his face was like the sun. We've already seen the guy whose face shone like the sun, the sun in chapter 1. And then it says his feet are like pillars of fire. Well, the, some commentators say that's like the, the, the pillars of uh, the, the, in, the, in the, the wilderness wanderings and all that. But, but it actually is very much like feet that are like burnished bronze in chapter 1. In other words, we've already seen a feller that looks a lot like this. He looks a lot like the Christ that John encounters in chapter 1. But there's a difference. When John sees that guy in chapter 1, he falls over dead. Falls over like dead. This time, he just notices this guy's pretty cool. So this is a bit of a mystery, but what we have here is a very significant angel. And it's, I, no matter how much we learn about angels, we won't, all, we won't really, I don't think, know until we get to the other side. 
But in Revelation, there's angels are iconic, representational. They are expressions of persons and movements. Churches have angels. God has angels. Everybody has. I mean, in Acts, Peter has one. Oh, he looks like Peter. I don't. You ask. I don't know. But I embrace the mystery. They're real and they're doing things. And you know, I'm very grateful for that. But for the very fact of that this is his description, the significance of, of who he is and what he's, what he's doing and what we'll see here is that this angel is carrying a mission and a message of supreme importance. This is not, in other words, just one more message along the way. This is something very significant. Now, I should say this is not in my notes. Chapters 10 and 11 represent another interlude in the story. In the, in the, remember when we opened up the seals? We had one, two, three, four, boom, the, the horsemen and everything. And then five, uh, we had this interlude in five. And between, between the sixth and seventh seals, we had this interlude. We had this pause. And actually, we saw, we looked at the church militant and triumphant before the seventh seal was burst. There was an interlude. We've had six trumpets, and now we have another interlude and you should go hey wait a minute last time there was an interlude it was a pause to look at the someone say church yeah last time we looked at an interlude it was a pause to examine the so if we're having another interlude this might be a clue where it's time to take another look at the very good so this is an interlude he's backing up and he's seeing something this is not necessarily linear, and it's not necessarily a, re, uh, you know, re, a recapitulation. It's just a vision. Just deal with it, okay? And so he sees this angel who, has, who is adorned significantly, and he's doing something incredible. And verse 2 says, and he had in his hand a little book or a small scroll, which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So this angel adorned with with nearly divine characteristic. He looks a lot like Jesus. Hmm, that's interesting. We should keep that in mind. He comes down with a book. Well, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? Anybody got a book in this place? Give me that. Holy smokes. Where we, give me, Todd, help me out for crying out loud. I'm looking around for a book, and all I got is a bunch of phones out, Okay. Seriously, the whole front row. Oh, you got one over here. Whole front row. So here we go. So, so a great big angel who looks like Jesus comes floating down with an open book. Stay with me. All right? Yeah. Here we go. She's right. Next week, everybody's going to bring their... I brought my real Bible. Um, uh, Now, the, now, John says it was small, but keep in mind, it was probably small in relation to how large this angel is. This angel is like the Greek Colossus. He is standing one foot on land, one foot on sea. So this is this massive thing. As a matter of fact, his stride, his standing between earth and sea like this, is a, again, it's a symbol. It means that what he has to say, he is speaking to all of creation. It's like, it's like it would be a message to go into to, to every, I don't know, to go to preach to all of creation something. That sounds familiar to anybody. Stay with me here. Hmm, go. It, it would be like this is a message for the whole planet. Okay. Verse 3, and he cries out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. I would do. Okay? I was about to write, and I heard a voice saying, knock it off. No. I heard a voice saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Time out. What? Seven peals of thunder have just spoken after this great angel comes down, and then John hears the voice that says, don't write that down. Well, are we going to hear it later? Uh, uh, some, many commentators think that this is, these are unrevealed or undisclosed judgments or judgments that might have been hinted at, but God changed his mind, literally. Okay? The question is, what in thunder did they say?
You know the answer? How many want to know the answer? This is why you call me Dr. Dab. You ready? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The hidden things belong to the Lord. Verse 5. What we do know is more important than what we don't know. And John wrote more than enough to keep us busy. Let's continue. Verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the earth and the sea lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. This is, again, we, this, this solemn, this raising of this right hand is an Old Testament image of taking a very solemn oath to raise your hand toward heaven. We see it in the Torah. We see it in prophetic and, and apocalyptic literature. But here's the thing. Whenever one gives an oath in this way, they will not or cannot take that back. That oath will never be forfeit. So this angel raises his hand and swears this, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, that's the seventh trumpet, which we haven't heard yet, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. When that trumpet sounds, the mystery is finished. It's complete. It's not over. It's complete. When the trumpet sounds... The mystery of God will be complete. I'm going to say it one more time because my belly says I have to. When the trumpet sounds, the mystery of God will be complete. And as he preached to his servants, the prophets, this, the word preach there is the same word that we have when we read this, that to preach the gospel. It's not just an announcement. It's, that, it's, the, it's the Greek word that means to preach the good news. And the mystery of God is the gospel. Everybody say it out loud so it's clear. The mystery of God is the gospel. There is no greater mystery that God has concerning man than the gospel. There's not a bigger secret. There's not some bigger file hiding somewhere. The biggest file, the the greatest file, the most sacred file in heaven has the name Christ on it. The gospel is the mystery. Paul said this, and again, we're looking at at Pauline apostolic churches here. These are the churches he founded. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, and he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Golly, some of these things, when you read them in Ephesians, they sound like, they sound so eschatologically out of place. But when I, when I, when I, when I look at the revelation and I come back and read, and read Paul, I think, oh, I see what he's talking about. With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things on the earth. Moreover, chapter 3, verse 4 begins like this. By referring to this, when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations has not been made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, this is the mystery. You ready? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me at the, uh, uh, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the things, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the, the administration or the plan of the mystery for the ages, which has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known through the church. So the manifold wisdom of God, this mystery of God, will now be made known how? Oh, you got to hear it. How is this mystery going to be made known? Say it again. 
This is going to help us understand what we're reading in Revelation through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The mystery is God's plan of redemption in Christ for Jew and Gentile, and in that redemption to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This was, this is the eternal purpose of God, and it's been carried out in Christ Jesus. This mystery will be finished. This mystery will be completed. There will be no more delay at the sound of the seventh trumpet. Yeah, I actually wrote Mufasa in my notes. The sound of the seventh trumpet. Can I wander a little bit here? I'm going to skate out there and remember Jesus is Lord coming and live like it. So that seventh trumpet, that sounds familiar. If everything is going to be wrapped up with the sound of a trumpet, I said to myself, self, where have you heard that? I heard Jesus say this. He said, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And I remember another guy who wrote in 1 Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. There's, there's actually seven of those, apparently. And the seventh one has a the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. I'm just wondering if that trumpet that we're hearing about is the same one that Jesus and Paul told us was going to sound. And the mystery will be finished. Verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, now this is a good clue for interpretation, Go take the book which is in, uh, which is in the open which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the earth and the land. You think anybody's going to go grab a book out of Jesus' hand? I'm, I'm not. You get close to that guy, you fall over, right? He says, go take that book. So listen to verse 9. So I went up to the angel telling him to give me the little book. This is not Jesus. <laughs> not, this is, here we go. Was that Jesus? No. <laughs> give me the book. Yeah. I'm not ever saying, anyway, he says to the angel, give me the book. (laughs) And it makes sense now why it's small, because the book's for John. And he said to me, here we go, take it and eat it. (laughs) My friend Troy used to always say, I buy you a book and you eat it. And I don't know. I don't know why he said that to me, but it was something sort of an insult. But uh, he says, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it. My niece tried to do that. I got a new book this week at Amazon. She's trying to eat my book. I don't appreciate it. (laughs) They send me pictures. You got a new book. And she's, stop that. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth, it was as sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, not specific, but John knew enough to listen. So should we. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning, listen to this, many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Wait a minute. So first of all, John was, does what Jeremiah and Ezekiel have done before him. Both of these men receive a message that they eat. Jeremiah says, I ate your words. I ate them. They are sweet. Ezekiel was actually given a scroll to eat. Ezekiel, same thing. Take this, eat this. And Ezekiel said, oh, that's sweet. Tastes sweet. For John, this, this book was sweet in his mouth, but, but bitter in his stomach. It is generally understood that this message, particularly if this message is the gospel, the word of God, that it is sweet to the taste. For the one tasting it and the one speaking it, it is sweet. 
But the consequences of this word, particularly in the light of the book of Revelation, can be bitter because of the the rejection that the speaker may face and the persecution that will accompany the message. Particularly for Revelation, we're talking about the persecution that will accompany the message. Regardless, having received this, John is now commissioned to prophesy to the scope of people that sounds like the same scope of people that the Lamb has purchased by His blood in chapter 5. And the same scope, the same size of crowd, the same representative of people who are worshiping around the throne in chapter 7. I sincerely believed that the scope of the commission and the description of this thing affirms that John is standing as a representative of the church commissioned in the midst of tribulation to feed upon and to proclaim the word of God. And that our, we, this helps us understand that our message is not just rainbows and daisies and unicorns. Jesus wants to give you hugs and daisies and unicorns and Hershey kisses all the time. Well, that's true. He loves us. But our message includes truth, salvation, repentance, reward, and judgment. Luke summarizes Paul's preaching for us. He does these little things for us. It helps us. In Acts chapter 24, verse 25, he summarizes Paul as he's in prison explaining the gospel. He says that Paul's, his admonitions are summarized as righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. That's the word of God. There's a righteousness that we have in the, that we have received in Jesus Christ. There's a self-control or a way of life that we live because of it. And eventually, for all of us, there is a judgment to come. And this is the word of God. It's sweet to the taste. It tastes and see. It's wonderful. Salvation is glorious. But there can be persecution attached to it. We, like John here, you and I, are commissioned to feed on this gospel, to make it literally a part of our being, and then to make it our message to the ends of the world, to take our stand on land and sea and herald this truth to nations and peoples and tongues and kings. Nobody is off limits to the message of the gospel. Chapter 11. Now, the, the, the chapter divisions are not part of the inspired text. They're just organized for us. So we just keep going. Then John says, look, chapter 11, verse 1, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given over to the nations, and they will tread under the foot of the holy city for 42 months. I told you a moment ago that commentators say this is a difficult passage to interpret. They actually double down on chapter 11 and throw their hands up and go for it. I, don't think it's, I just don't think it's that hard because we're supposed to hear and heed this. Now, in this case... When, when something is measured, we see that we've seen this in the Old Testament. When something is measured, it, it, it has the same implications as you'll see. This being measured has the same implication as we saw in chapter 7 and verse 3 as being sealed or being marked. It is, it is something that, that is indicating the Lord is take, taking very, very he is, he's taking care of it. He's paying attention to it, and he's ensuring it. John's audience would have already fully embraced this principle. I've got to cut to the chase here. John's audience would have embraced this truth. The temple of God is the church. The temple of God is the church. I want you to all to say it with me. The temple of God is the church. By the time John was writing this, there wasn't, any, there wasn't even a temple left in Jerusalem. It had been totally destroyed. John's writing had already affirmed, I mean, Paul's writing has already clearly affirmed 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 are clear. Know ye not, ye are the temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you. You are the temple. You are the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Somebody say, we are the temple. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 makes it even more clear. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. But the outer court, where once the Gentiles and the nations could come and come no further, there used to be a court, particularly in the, in the, in the second temple, there was a court, there was a wall, I don't have time, to, I'll take it. There was a, you know in Ephesians, Paul says that, he has, that Christ has destroyed the wall of hostility between us. That, that by itself, it makes sense to read it, we get it, we know what a wall is, we know what hostility is. <laughs> but Josephus tells us that in that second temple, in that temple, that they had actually constructed a, an, an additional wall between the court of the Gentiles and their, everything else. And there was a wall that was built, and it was called the Wall of Hostility. And there was a sign on that wall that said, anybody who's not a Jew that came past this will face the penalty of death. That's a wall of hostility. So there's this outer court. They understood that there was, they, the, John's audience understood that there was this outer court. These were the, this is where the Gentiles or the non-Jews, the non-believers, they could come but come no further. But now it represents the uh, surrounding or a besieging of the temple, the, of the people of God. This siege, oh, I got to continue. He says, leave out the, the, leave out the court which is uh, uh, outside the temple. Do, do not measure it for it has been given to it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot, of, tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. This outer court, which belongs to the Gentiles or to the nations, John describes now as something that is going to have a season where it is under assault or persecution for 42 months. 42 months? Hey, that's great. That's a, that's a, that's just, that'll be over before you know it. 42 months, now listen, listen, lean in, and write these things down in case you're curious. 42 months is the same as three and a half years, is the same as 1,260 days. That's the same. Everybody say, that's the same. And you'll see these numbers repeated in Revelation. And I need you to lean in and just get your smile on, because I think this will help you relax and embrace this text a little more. This number became a conventional, apocalyptic symbol for a limited but not literal period of wickedness and oppression or trial for God's people. It began in Daniel chapter 7 and 25 when the prophet spoke of the period of time again when the Jews suffered under an Antiochus Epiphanes from 168 to 165. That was the period of time. It was prophesied and it was fulfilled 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, until they retook the temple that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Remember the palm trees and the triumph. So then after that, this season, you've got to catch this. This is many, many years. This season became a prototype and a symbol of a season of suffering and time under trial. It's not the same at all. But for whatever reason, when Lori and I started dating, when something took a long time, we started saying, that took nine years. Right? We've said that in our, for, for 24 years. We've been saying, well, that took nine years. It's, it, it just means a long time. Ben said it to me the other day. He said, man, that took nine years. And I said, what? I didn't realize that he picked it up. But, uh, it just, but for us, it, it's, now, it, to us, it doesn't mean anything other than a long time. But you see, it... it, it it became part of our, 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 our milu, our, our psyche. And for them, that period of time, under, under that Syrian oppressor, that, that, that horrible, horrible time became iconic. That period of time represents a season of suffering, a season of hardship, a time of trial for the people of God. It's symbolic. Please say it with me. It's symbolic. But when we say something is symbolic, we do not mean that it's not real. It, it, it is a, a symbol represents something that's very real. But here's the thing. We, 
to be, you've got to be careful with literature like we're reading, the genre of literature that we're reading. You've got to be careful to interpret. If we interpret apocalyptic literature, if we, do it, if we interpret it without symbolism, we do so to its harm. When we understand and appreciate the symbolism, we honor what we're reading. Oftentimes, with particularly prophetic and apocalyptic literature, if you interpret it literally, too literally, you will forfeit the real meaning. Let me give you the silliest, easiest example I can. Here in, here in, my, in my left hand, you can't see it very well, but this is my wedding ring. You see it? You know what this is? It is a piece of stainless steel with phony glass. It's about eight bucks. I have a real one that she spent more money on, but it's, it, I beat it up too much, so I got to have to wear stainless steel. So literally, you see, you're with me? You might say, hey, Pastor Dave, I expect a literal interpretation. Okay. Literally, this is a cheap piece of steel. Literally. If, and I, if I stick with a literal interpretation, I've got nothing. If I stick with a literal interpretation, I have nothing. But if I embrace the symbolism, it's a, I see not a steel ring. I see a covenant. I see a covenant of 24 years and many more to come. I see a life that is walked through joy and trial and victory. I see a home of hope. I, I, you see, when I, when I embrace the symbolism, I get the meaning. And then when you come to apocalyptic literature, don't be afraid of the symbolism because that's the meaning. So he says, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be 42 months. And the, the audience goes, oh, a season of suffering. That's, a, that's not, that's, that's rough. This time period, though it is expressed symbolically, it's very real. You might say it's a time of tribulation. Now we will see, the notes are already up there, but we will see it used not just here, but three more times this time period will be used. It will, in 11 and, and chapter 12 and chapter 13, this time period is used, and it's consistently used to describe this season of time under trial. Now, the question for us again this morning, then, is, is this a specific and unique season way off into the future? Did it, or as the preterists say, did it already happen in the past? What's going on here? Let me repeat this. Humility requires us to be cautious with absolutes. We approach humili- uh, uh, Revelation with humility, but I think the evidence from the text and from history tells us this. This 42 months, this time where, where the Gentiles are surrounding the temple, the, the church. Uh, first of all, remember that Gentiles now, from now on, Gentiles doesn't mean anything ethnic. It means people who are outside of Christ, who have rejected Christ. That's, that's when the scriptures in the New Testament 4, we're talking about the Gentiles. They mean those outside of Christ, not those outside of any bloodline. Well, different bloodline. <laughs> so it was this 42 months. Was that then? Was that, will it be someday? I think here. I think here's the answer. This, this, is, this was then, and this is, and this will be. This, this period, this time is cyclical. It is intensifying, and perhaps in ways that I cannot even yet imagine, it, it may intensify even until the trumpet sounds. People throughout history especially through the last 200 years, have read Revelation and have seen in their lifetimes, they've said, oh, this event, this is, this is what's happening right now, whether it was Mussolini or it was Hitler or it was Barishnikov, or was that a ballet dancer? Or, uh, 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 you know, they, they saw all these world leaders and events and they said, aha, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. And they, and they could line it up and it made sense every time. You know what? I don't think that's an accident. I think it's because this world system is the same. It just keeps happening over and over again, and oftentimes worse and worse, and it will do so until a trumpet sounds, and then there will be no more delay. But I I just can't endorse the idea that all of redemptive history hangs on 
you know, three and a half years. 30, you know, I, I, I can't do that. If this is all for a galaxy far, far away, then there is nothing for you and I to hear and heed today. But we are told we must hear and we must heed what is said. We can't allow this just to be dismissed into a different place. This is for us. We must respond. We are sealed. We are the temple. And we must understand that there is, there is a spirit, a hostile spirit against the church. We're going to talk about this next week. But that, that, very, that very world system that the church, especially for the last hundred or so years, have gone, has gone out of its way to kiss that world's fanny and beg for that world to approve of us and applaud of us and, and, and to validate us, that same system will eventually kill us. Stop seeking the applause of the spirit of this world. That'll be next week. Verse 3, I promise, I've mapped this out. I actually stopped in my notes. I didn't know why. I can't go any further. We're almost done this morning. Verse 3, and the voice says, this was not now the church. That's the church is the temple. The church is his witness. Woo, we're about to get even more fun into the woods now. Everybody say, the church is his witness. Verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, listen, for 1,260 days. That's the same time period as 42 months, the same season. They will prophesy. They will have a mission. As long as they are the temple, they will have a mission. They will have a voice. They will have something to say, whether they are under siege or they're being applauded. They will have something to say. Clothed in sackcloth. Hmm. And, they, and these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Stay tuned. We're not going to back away from any of this. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way from what comes out of their mouth. And, and they will have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they will have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague so often as they desire. Now, if we interpret that hyper-literally, we are out of luck. We are. I mean, I, I, we're, you are not going to turn water into blood. John is specifically doing something here. And let me just let, stay with me here. Some say these witnesses that, that we just heard about are absolutely literal. That it's, you know, it's a piece of steel with fake glass, are absolutely literal. And this is somehow, this is Moses and Elijah are going to return at the end of the days. By the way, did you read in the book, did John give them names? Did he actually call them people? No, he just said, my witnesses, and they're going to talk. And he said, they're, they're lampstands and, and olive branches or trees. We'll get to that. So, but some say, oh, this is literal. This is Moses and Elijah are going to return at the end of days. And they are going to wield the same power that they had before. All of the stuff that you read about, Moses and Elijah did that. Elijah called down fire on people, killed them. Moses called down things. And again, they, this, somehow they say this, what's got to be is they're going to be this, this resurrection. And why Moses and Elijah? Because they, they didn't die. They got beamed up. Right? So they're going to come back, and they're going to come back wearing their togas or whatever the heck they're wearing, and, and their sackcloth, and then we're going to, and this is the, where somehow people are, but these people are looking back in sentiment at what used to be, at something that no longer is, has a voice. There was a mountain, you see, there was a mountain, you see, where Jesus ascended, and he stood there, and then Moses and Elijah sat there with him, and then there was a voice, you see, from heaven that said, don't listen to these guys anymore. This is my son, listen to him. Hebrews said that in these days, God has spoken to us through his son. What God has to say, he has the crescendo of his voice, is his son. I mean, there's all kinds of ideas on who these witnesses are. All kinds of them. Moses and Elijah, Enoch and Elijah, Enoch and Moses, the law and the prophets, Peter and Paul, Joseph and Mary, Sonny and Cher, the captain and Tennille. Batman and Robin, I cannot sign off. 
on any idea of some sort of dynamic duo returning at the end of the days to save the day and to challenge the powers that be. Because if these two witnesses are literal people coming, Jesus would have had something to say about it. But Jesus only had something to say about one group of witnesses. He said, you shall be my witnesses. Only one group of witnesses Jesus had. There's witnesses, all right. You are looking at them. And if that's true, we need to take a closer look here. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to the utmost ends of the earth. These witnesses are real. They are the church. Real quick, why are there two of them? Two reasons. Universally accepted this, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. If anything's true in the Bible, you've got to have two witnesses. Let, everything, let every matter be established by two or more witnesses. So there's following, once again, just following the Torah. John's not, never going to not follow the Torah. Okay? Got to have two witnesses. But then why are there two? Why are there two? I'm going to tell you right now. I haven't read anybody else. And I, this might, I could be wrong then. But uh, I'm just saying, I couldn't find it anywhere else. Why are there two? Other than the Deuteronomic witness. Because of what Paul's already said about the mystery of God. What's the mystery of God? Is that his church is made up of Jews and the Gentiles. The witness of the church throughout the earth is that we have become one people in Christ. The witness is now there is neither slave or free or male or female or Jew or Gentile, but Christ. We are his witness. Furthermore, he said these witnesses are, he, he talks about, uh, the, the lampstands and the olive branches. He's, he's referencing, uh, I got to go quick here. Oh, these witnesses, are, are, they, are, they are literally ascribed serious power like Moses and Elijah. They are called olive trees and lampstands. And this is from Zechariah chapter 4. All this to say that these witnesses, take a look around the room, that these witnesses are enabled and empowered to witness for the Lord supernaturally. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What you need to understand is that John does not see in his revelatory vision a weak, anemic church. What he sees is a church that carries no lesser power than the prophets who have preceded her. That when we speak, things change. When we pray, things change. That we are not a weak voice. We are a powerful voice. We are a prophetic voice. We are a voice for change. There may be opposition, but but we do not face it with the arm of the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but on the contrary, they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. John does not see a weak, timid church, but a powerful spirit anointed witness for Jesus Christ. This beckons us to to press further into what real power Christ has provided for our effective witness. A little less smoke screens and laser lights, a little more Holy Ghost power. He sees a church that prophesies, that speaks in the power of the Spirit without fear and without yielding to pressure or opposition. A church that speaks to an unbelieving world and calls it to repent and be reconciled to God through Christ. This is what we should hear and heed this morning. This is what we are supposed to be doing during tribulation. We have work to do. In addition to hearing of the hope and the comfort of God's eternal justice and reward, we understand we have work to do. We are commissioned to bear and to bring his word. It is a message that will be sweet in our mouths and sweet to all who taste it, but often leaves an ache for us when we are rejected or or when others 
face the consequences of their own choices. We are protected as his temple. We have been marked and measured for preservation, and we are the place of his abiding presence. And we are empowered to be his witnesses. Relying upon the Holy Spirit, let us never waver. We, listen, what does it mean to be a witness? We are the evidence that Jesus is Lord and that he is coming again. Let's stand as we close. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Lord, we give you praise today. Lord, in humility and reverence we come. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. What, what a privilege, what an honor to be, to belong. To belong to you, Lord, to be, to be marked and to be measured and to be appointed and anointed as your witnesses, Lord doesn't cause us to stand and thump our chest in arrogance. We, 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 we tremble before you in humility and gratitude. Lord, like the scripture describes, we are clothed in sackcloth. We are, we are humble and we are contrite as we plead with men to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. But Lord, I pray that your church today would swell with confidence and hope. Swell with boldness an awareness that we have received the message of God, that we are the temple of God, and that we have been anointed as the, as the witnesses of God. Lord, we thank you for these things. We reverence the name of Jesus. I pray that each person in this room grows into, leans into an awareness of their calling and their capacity as witnesses for Jesus Christ. I thank you for this today, Lord. I thank you for it. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ who loves us first and most, we say amen. 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 Can we give the Lord just gratitude across the house today? We give him praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right, my friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make sure that you get a, a touch card on your way out today. Go change the world. And everybody bring somebody. Everybody bring somebody. Hey, see you tonight. God bless you.